Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Somehow. come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked Isn't drawer today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Harry by Rosemary Timperley Such ordinary things make me afraid. Sunshine, sharp shadows on grass, white roses, children with red hair, and the name Harry. Such an ordinary name. The first time Christine mentioned the name, I felt a premonition of fear. She was five years old, due to start school in three months' time. It was a hot, beautiful day, and she was playing alone in the garden, as she often did. I saw her lying on her stomach in the grass, picking daisies and making daisy chains with laborious pleasure. The sun burned on her pale red hair and made her skin look very white. Her big blue eyes were wide with concentration. Suddenly, she looked towards the bush of white roses, which cast its shadow over the grass and smiled. Yes, I'm Christine, she said. She rose and walked slowly towards the bush, her little plump legs defenceless and endearing beneath the too short blue cotton skirt. She was growing fast. With my mummy and daddy, she said clearly. Then, after a pause, oh, but they are my mummy and daddy. She was in the shadow of the bush now. It was as if she'd walked out of the world of light into darkness. Uneasy. Without quite knowing why, I called her. Chris, uh, what are you doing? Nothing. The voice sounded too far away. Come indoors now. It's too hot for you out there. Not too hot. Come indoors, Chris. She said. I, I must go in now. Goodbye. Then walked slowly towards the house. Chris, who were you talking to? Harry, she said. Who's Harry? Harry. I couldn't get anything else out of her so I just gave her some cake and milk and read to her until bedtime. As she listened, she stared out at the garden. Once she smiled and waved. It was a relief finally to tuck her up in bed and feel she was safe. When Jim, my husband, came home, I told him about the mysterious Harry. He laughed. Oh, she started that lark, has she? What do you mean, Jim? It's not so very rare for only children to have an imaginary companion. Some kids talk to their dolls. Chris has never been keen on her dolls. She hasn't any brothers or sisters. She hasn't any friends her own age. So, she imagines someone. But, but why has she picked that particular name? He shrugged. You know how kids pick things up? I don't know what you're worrying about. Honestly, I don't. Nor do I, really. It, it's just that I feel extra responsible for her. More so than if I were her real mother. I know, but she's all right. Chris is fine. She's a pretty, healthy, intelligent little girl. A credit to you. And to you. In fact, we're thoroughly nice parents. And so modest. We laughed together, and he kissed me. I felt consoled. Until next morning. Again, the sun shone brilliantly on the small bright lawn and white roses. Christine was sitting on the grass cross-legged staring towards the rose bush, smiling. Hello, she said. I hoped you'd come, because I like you. How old are you? I'm only five and a piece. I'm not a baby. I'm going to school soon, and I shall have a new dress, a green one. Do you go to school? What do you do then? 
She was silent for a while, nodding, listening, absorbed. I felt myself going cold as I stood there in the kitchen. Don't be silly. Lots of children have an imaginary companion, I told myself desperately. Just carry on as if nothing were happening. Don't listen. Don't be a fool. But I called Chris in earlier than usual for her mid-morning milk. Your milk's ready, Chris. Come along. In a minute. This was a strange reply. Usually she rushed in eagerly for her milk and the special sandwich cream biscuits over which she was a little gourmand. Come now, darling, I said. Can Harry come too? No. A cry burst from me, harshly, surprising me. Goodbye, Harry. I'm sorry you can't come in, but I've got to have my milk, Chris said, then ran towards the house. Why can't Harry have some milk too, she challenged me. Who is Harry, darling? Harry's my brother. But Chris, you haven't got a brother. Daddy and Mummy have only got one child, one little girl. That's you. Harry can't be your brother. Harry's my brother, he says so. She bent over the glass of milk and emerged with a smeary top lip. Then she grabbed at the biscuits. At least Harry hadn't spoiled her appetite. After she'd had her milk, I said, We'll go shopping now, Chris. You'd like to come to the shops with me, wouldn't you? I want to stay with Harry. Well, you can't. You're coming with me. Can Harry come too? No. My hands were trembling as I put on my hat and gloves. It was chilly in the house nowadays, as if there were a cold shadow over it in spite of the sun outside. Chris came with me meekly enough, but as we walked down the street she turned and waved. I didn't mention any of this to Jim that night. I knew he'd only scoff as he'd done the day before. But when Christine's Harry fantasy went on day after day, he got more and more on my nerves. I came to hate and dread those long summer days. I longed for grey skies and rain. I longed for the white roses to wither and die. I trembled when I heard Christine's voice prattling away in the garden. She talked quite unrestrainedly to Harry now. One Sunday, when Jim heard her at it, he said, I'll say one thing for imaginary companions, they help a child on with her talking. Chris is talking much more freely than she used to. With an accent, I blurted out. An accent? A slight Cockney accent? My dearest, every London child gets a slight Cockney accent. It'll be much worse when she goes to school and meets lots of other kids. We don't talk Cockney. Where does she get it from? Who can she be getting from except... I couldn't say the name. The baker, the milkman, the dustman, the coalman, the window cleaner. Want any more? I suppose not. I laughed ruefully. Jim made me feel foolish. Anyway, said Jim, I haven't noticed any cockney in her voice. There isn't when she talks to us. It's only when she's talking to... To him. To Harry. You know, I'm getting quite attached to young Harry. Wouldn't it be fun one day if we looked out and saw him? Don't, I cried. Don't say that. It's my nightmare. My waking nightmare. Oh, Jim, I can't bear it much longer. He looked astonished. This Harry business is really getting you down, isn't it? Of course it is. Day in, day out. I hear nothing but Harry this, Harry that, Harry says, Harry thinks. Can Harry have some? Can Harry come too? It's all right for you out at the office all day, but I have to live with it. I'm afraid of it, Jim. It's so queer. Do you know what I think you should do to put your mind at rest? What? 
Take Chris along to see old Dr. Webster tomorrow. Let him have a little talk with her. Do you think she's ill? I in her mind? Good heavens, no. But when we come across something that's beyond us, it's as well to take professional advice. Next day, I took Chris to see Dr. Webster. I left her in the waiting room while I had told him briefly about Harry. He nodded sympathetically, then said, It's a fairly unusual case, Mrs. James, but by no means unique. I've had several cases of children's imaginary companions becoming so real to them that the parents got the jitters. I expect she's a rather lonely little girl, isn't she? She doesn't know any other children. We're new to the neighbourhood, you see, but that will be put right when she starts school. And I think you'll find that when she goes to school and meets other children, these fantasies will disappear. You see, every child needs company of her own age, and if she doesn't get it, she invents it. Older people who are lonely talk to themselves. That doesn't mean that they're crazy, just that they need someone to talk to. A child is more practical. Seems silly to talk to yourself, she thinks, so she invents someone to talk to. I honestly don't think you've anything to worry about. That's what my husband says. I'm sure he does. Still, I'll have a chat with Christine as you've brought her. Leave us alone together. I went to the waiting room to fetch Chris. She was at the window. She said, Harry's waiting. Where, Chris? I said quietly, wanting suddenly to see with her eyes. There, by the rose bush. The doctor had a bush of white roses in his garden. There's no one there, I said. Chris gave me a glance of unchildlike scorn. Dr. Webster wants to see you now, darling, I said shakily. You remember him, don't you? He gave you sweets when you were getting better from chickenpox. Yes, she said, and went willingly enough to the doctor's surgery. I waited restlessly. Finally, I heard their voices through the wall, heard the doctor's chuckle, Christine's high peal of laughter. She was talking away to the doctor in a way she didn't talk to me. When they came out, he said, Nothing wrong with her, whatever. She's just an imaginative little monkey. A word of advice, Mrs. James. Let her talk about Harry. Let her become accustomed to confiding in you. I gather you've shown some disapproval of this uh, a brother of hers, so she doesn't talk much to you about him. He makes wooden toys, doesn't he, Chris? Yes, Harry makes wooden toys. And he can read and write, can't he? And swim and climb trees and paint pictures. Harry can do everything. He's a wonderful brother. A little face flushed with adoration. The doctor patted me on the shoulder and said, Harry sounds like a very nice brother for her. He's even got red hair like you, Chris, hasn't he? Harry's got red hair, said Chris proudly. Redder than my hair. And he's nearly as tall as Daddy, only thinner. He's as tall as you, Mummy. He's fourteen. He says he's tall for his age. What is tall for his age? Mummy will tell you about that when you walk home, said Dr. Webster. Now, goodbye, Mrs. James. Don't worry. Just let her prat. Goodbye, Chris. Give my love to Harry. He's there, said Chris, pointing to the doctor's garden. He's been waiting for me. Dr. Webster laughed. They're incorrigible, aren't they? He said. I knew one poor mother whose children invented a whole tribe of imaginary natives whose rituals and taboos ruled the household. Perhaps you're lucky, Mrs. James. I tried to feel comforted by all this, but I wasn't. I hoped sincerely that when Chris started school this wretched Harry business would finish. Chris ran ahead of me. She looked up as if at someone beside her. For a brief 
dreadful second. I saw a shadow on the pavement alongside her own, a long, thin shadow, like a boy's shadow. Then it was gone. I ran to catch her up and held her hand tightly all the way home. Even in the comparative security of the house, the house so strangely cold in this hot weather, I never let her out of my sight. On the face of it, she behaved no differently towards me, but in reality, she was drifting away. The child in my house was becoming a stranger. For the first time since Jim and I had adopted Chris, I wondered seriously, who is she? Where does she come from? Who were her real parents? Who is this little loved stranger I've taken as a daughter? Who is Christine? Another week passed. It was Harry, Harry all the time. The day before she was to start school, Chris said, Not going to school. You're going to school tomorrow, Chris. You're looking forward to it. You know you are. There'll be lots of other little... There'll be lots of other little girls and boys. Harry says he can't come too. You won't want Harry at school. He'll... I tried hard to follow the doctor's advice and appear to believe in Harry. He'll be too old. He'll feel silly among little boys and girls. A great lad of fourteen. I won't go to school without Harry. I want to be with Harry. She began to weep, loudly, painfully. Chris, stop this nonsense. Stop it. I struck her sharply on the arm. Her crying ceased immediately. She stared at me, her blue eyes wide open and frighteningly cold. She gave me an adult stare that made me tremble. Then she said, You don't love me. Harry loves me. Harry wants me. He says I can go with him. I will not hear any more of this, I shouted, hating the anger in my voice, hating myself for being angry at all with a little girl, my little girl, mine. I went down on one knee and held out my arms. Chris, darling, come here. She came slowly. I love you, I said. I love you, Chris, and I'm real. School is real. Go to school to please me. Harry will go away if I do. You'll have other friends. I want Harry. Again, the tears wet against my shoulder now. I held her closely. You're tired, baby. Come to bed. She slept with the tear stains still on her face. It was still daylight. I went to the window to draw her curtains, golden shadows and long strips of sunshine in the garden. Then again, like a dream, the long, thin, clear-cut shadow of a ball near the white roses. Like a madwoman, I opened the window and shouted, Harry, Harry! I thought I saw a glimmer of red among the roses, like close red curls on a boy's head. Then there was nothing. When I told Jim about Christine's emotional outburst, he said, Poor little kid. It's always a nervy business starting school. She'll be all right once she gets there. You'll be hearing less about Harry, too, as time goes on. Harry doesn't want her to go to school. Hey, you sound as if you believe in Harry yourself. Sometimes I do. Believing in evil spirits in your old age, he teased me. But his eyes were concerned. He thought I was going round the bend. and small blame to him. I don't think Harry's evil, I said. He's just a boy, a boy who doesn't exist, except for Christine. And who is Christine? None of that, said Jim sharply. 
When we adopted Chris, we decided she was to be our own child. No probing into the past, no wondering and worrying, no mysteries. Chris is as much ours as if she'd been born of our flesh. Who is Christine indeed? She's our daughter. And just you remember that. Yes, Jim, you're right. Of course you're right. He'd been so fierce about it that I didn't tell him what I planned to do the next day when Chris was at school. Next morning, Chris was silent and sulky. Jim joked with her and tried to cheer her, but all she would do was look out of the window and say, Harry's gone. You won't need Harry now. You're going to school, said Jim. Chris gave him that look of grown-up contempt she'd given me sometimes. She and I didn't speak as I took her to school. I was almost in tears. Although I was glad for her to start school, I felt a sense of loss at parting with her. I suppose every mother feels that when she takes her ewe lamb to school for the first time. It's the end of babyhood for the child, and the beginning of life in reality with its cruelty, its strangeness, its barbarity. He kissed her goodbye at the gate and said, You'll be having dinner at school with the other children, Chris, and I'll call for you when school is over, at three o'clock. Yes, Mummy. She held my hand tightly. Other nervous little children were arriving with equally nervous parents. A pleasant young teacher with fair hair and a white linen dress appeared at the gate. She gathered new children towards her and led them away. She gave me a sympathetic smile as she passed and said, We'll take good care of her. I felt quite light-hearted as I walked away, knowing that Chris was safe and I didn't have to worry. Now I started on my secret mission. I took a bus to town and went to the big gaunt building I hadn't visited for over five years. Then, Jim and I had gone together. The top floor of the building belonged to the Greythorn Adoption Society. I climbed the four flights and knocked on the familiar door with its scratched paint. A secretary whose face I didn't know let me in. May I see Miss Cleaver? My name is Mrs. James. Have you an appointment? No, it is very important. I'll see. The girl went out and returned a second later. Miss Cleaver will see you, Mrs. James. Miss Cleaver, a tall, thin, grey-haired woman with a charming smile, a plain, kindly face, and a very wrinkled brow, rose to meet me. Mrs. James, how nice to see you again. How's Christine? She's very well, Miss Cleaver. I'd better get straight to the point. I know you don't normally divulge the origins of a child to its adopters and vice versa but I must know who Christine is. Sorry, Mrs. James, she began, are our rules. Please, let me tell you the whole story, then you'll see I'm not just suffering from vulgar curiosity. I told her about Harry. When I'd finished, she said, it's very queer, very queer indeed, Mrs. James. I'm going to break my rule for once. I'm going to tell you in strict confidence where Christine came from. She was born in a very poor part of London. There were four in the family, father, mother, son, and Christine herself. Son? Yes, he was fourteen when... when it happened. When what happened? Let me start at the beginning. The parents hadn't really wanted Christine. The family lived in one room at the top of an old house which should have been condemned by the sanitary inspector, in my opinion. It was difficult enough when there were only three of them. With a baby as well, life became a nightmare. The mother was a neurotic creature, slatternly, unhappy, too fat. 
After she'd had the baby, she took no interest in it. The brother, however, adored the little girl from the start. He got into trouble for cutting school so he could look after her. The father had a steady job in a warehouse, not much money, but enough to keep them alive. Then he was sick for several weeks and lost his job. He was laid up in that messy room, ill, worrying, nagged by his wife, irked by the baby's crying and his son's eternal fussing over the child. I got all these details from neighbours afterwards, by the way. I was also told that he'd had a particularly bad time in the war and had been in a nerve hospital for several months before he was fit to come home at all after his demob. Suddenly, it all proved too much for him. One morning, in the small hours, a woman in the ground-floor room saw something fall past her window and heard a thud on the ground. She went out to look. The son of the family was there, on the ground. Christine was in his arms. The boy's neck was broken. He was dead. Christine was blue in the face, but still breathing faintly. The woman woke the household, sent for the police and the doctor, then they went to the top room. They had to break down the door, which was locked and sealed from inside. An overpowering smell of gas greeted them. In spite of the open window, they found husband and wife dead in bed, and a note from the husband saying, I can't go on. I'm going to kill them all. It's the only way. The police concluded that he'd sealed up door and windows and turned on the gas when his family were asleep, then laying beside his wife until he drifted into unconsciousness and death. But the son must have wakened. Perhaps he struggled with the door but couldn't open it. He'd be too weak to shout. All he could do was pluck away the seals from the window, open it and fling himself out, holding his adored little sister tightly in his arms. Why Christine herself wasn't gassed is rather a mystery. Perhaps her head was right under the bedclothes, pressed against her brother's chest. They always slept together. Anyway, the child was taken to hospital, then to the home where you and Mr. James first saw her. And a lucky day that was for little Christine. For her brother saved her life and died himself, I said. Yes, he was a very brave man. Perhaps he thought not so much of saving her as keeping her with him. Oh dear, that sounds ungenerous. I didn't mean to be. Miss Cleaver, what was his name? I'll have to look that up for you. She referred to one of her many fires and said at last, the family's name was Jones and the fourteen-year-old brother was called Harold. Did he have red hair? I murmured. That I don't know, Mrs. James. But it's Harry. The boy was Harry. What does it mean? I, I can't understand it. It's not easy, but I think perhaps deep in her unconscious mind, Christine has always remembered Harry, the companion of her babyhood. We don't think of children as having much memory, but there must be images of the past tucked away somewhere in the little heads. Christine doesn't invent this Harry. She remembers him so clearly that she's almost brought him to life again. I know it sounds far-fetched, but the whole story is so odd that I can't think of any other explanation. May I have the address of the house where they lived? She was reluctant to give this information, but I persuaded her and set out at last to find number 13 Canberra Row, where the man Jones had tried to kill himself and his whole family and almost succeeded. The house seemed deserted. It was filthy and derelict. One thing 
made me stare and stare. There was a tiny garden, a scatter of bright uneven grass splashed the bald brown patches of earth, but the little garden had one strange glory that none of the other houses in the poor sad street possessed, a bush of white roses. They bloomed gloriously, their scent was overpowering. I stood by the bush and stared up at the top window. A voice startled me. What are you doing here? It was an old woman peering from the ground floor window. I, I thought the house was empty, I said. Should be, being condemned. But they can't get me out. Nowhere else to go. Won't go. The others went quickly enough after it happened. No one else wants to come. They say the place is haunted. So it is. But what's the fuss about? Life and death, they're very close. You get to know that when you're old. Alive or dead, what's the difference? She looked at me with yellowish, bloodshot eyes and said, I seen him fall past my window. That's where he fell, among the roses. He still comes back. I sees him. He won't go away till he gets her. I see him. He won't go away till he gets her. <clears throat> who, who are you talking about? Harry Jones, nice boy he was, red hair, very thin, too determined though, always got his own way, loved Christine too much I thought, died among the roses, used to sit down there with her for hours by the roses, then died there, or do people die, the church ought to give us an answer, but it don't, not one you can believe, go away will you, this place isn't for you, it's for the dead who aren't dead, and the living, you aren't alive. Am I alive or dead? You tell me. I don't know. Crazy eyes staring at me beneath the matted white fringe of hair frightened me. Mad people are terrifying. One can pity them, but one is still afraid. I murmured, I'll go now, goodbye, and tried to hurry across the hard, hot pavement still my... And... <clears throat> and tried to hurry across the hard, hot pavements though my legs felt heavy and half-paralysed as in a nightmare. The sun blazed down on my head, but I was hardly aware of it. I lost all sense of time or place as I stumbled on. Then I heard something that chilled my blood. A clock struck three. At three o'clock I was supposed to be at the school gates waiting for Christine. Where was I now? How near the school? What bus should I take? I made frantic inquiries of passers-by who looked at me fearfully as I had looked at the old woman. They must have thought I was crazy. At last I caught the right bus and, sick with dust, petrol fumes and fear, reached the school. I ran across the hot, empty playground. In the classroom, the young teacher in white was gathering her books together. I've come for Christine James. I'm her mother. I'm so sorry I'm late. Where is she? I gasped. Christine James? The girl frowned, then said brightly, Oh, yes, I remember. The pretty little red-haired girl. That's all right, Mrs. James. Brother called for her. How alike they are, aren't they? And so devoted. It's rather sweet to see a boy of that age so fond of his baby sister. Has your husband got red hair like the two children? What did her brother say? I asked faintly. He didn't say anything. When I spoke to him, he just smiled. They'll be home by now, I should think. I say, do you feel all right? Yes, thank you. I must go home. 
I ran all the way home through the burning streets. Chris, Christine, where are you? Chris, Chris. Sometimes even now, I hear my own voice of the past screaming through the cold house. Christine, Chris, where are you? Answer me, Chris. Then, Harry, don't take her away. Come back, Harry. Harry. Demented, I rushed out into the garden. The sun struck me like a hot blade. Roses glared whitely. The air was so still, I seemed to stand in timelessness, placelessness. For a moment, I seemed very near to Christine, although I couldn't see her. Then, the roses danced before my eyes and turned red. The world turned red, blood red, wet red. I fell through redness to blackness to nothingness, almost death. For weeks I was in bed with sunstroke which turned to brain fever. During that time Jim and the police searched for Christine in vain. The futile search continued for months. The papers were full of the strange disappearance of the red-haired child. The teacher described the brother who had called for her. There were newspaper stories of kidnapping, baby snatching, child murders. Then the sensation died down just another unsolved mystery in police files. And only two people knew what happened, an old, crazed woman living in a derelict house, and myself. Years have passed, but I walk in fear. Such ordinary things make me afraid. Sunshine, sharp shadows on grass, white roses, children, with red hair, and the name Harry. Such an ordinary name. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room so? today, didn't you? you tried to How get do the dead come back, Mother? Didn't you? What's the secret? So that was Harry by Rosemary Timperley. I need to thank Steve Cuff for suggesting I read Harry. We've done one other story by Rosemary Timperley, which was a Christmas meeting, and that'll go out towards Christmas on YouTube. It's already out on the podcast. If you can't wait and you want to hear it now, just a little bit about Rosemary, if I may. Don't Not that I know her particularly well, Mrs. Timperley. Rosemary Timperley was born in 1920 in North London and died in November 1988 aged 68, if you can do your maths. Her father was an architect and her mother was a teacher. She went to Hornsey Girls School, uh, which is a well-regarded school, which was even recently the top performing, one of the top performing girls schools in its area. So I believe it's a state school, not not a private school, but um, it's a very good school, or it certainly has been. I haven't been recently. I've never been actually, so I, I don't know what I'm talking about. She herself became a teacher, presumably inspired by her mother, and taught English and history in a state school. And there are some comments on the internet about her presence there. She was involved in the drama society in the school. I mean, I think that's what English teachers do. Certainly my English teacher ran the drama society at our school. Um, she was said to be a very dramatic figure. Um, she wore long, swirling black dresses with long drop or hoop earrings, and when she was a teacher, she began to submit her stories to magazines and, and they began to be accepted. 
She then left teaching and became a staff writer on a magazine called Ravelli, an, an agony aunt under a pen name. She lived in Richmond in Surrey, which is a well-heeled suburb of London now, just southwest near the Thames. Uh, and many of her stories are set in London. She, is, she was a Londoner. During the Second World War, she apparently worked in the Citizens Advice Bureau in Kensington, again in southwest London. She was married to a physics teacher in 1952. So she obviously still had, the timing's hard to work out here. I don't know if she was still teaching by then. Or otherwise, how would she meet her physics teacher unless it was a complete coincidence? And they said, oh, yeah, what we've got in common is teaching. Anyway, there is a, there is a story that they separated in the early 60s. But another reference to her at least being attached to him in some way until he's, when he died in 1968. However, there's a reference in 1961 that she mentioned she's living in a small old fashioned flat and living on coffee, gin and cigarettes. In 1964, she became seriously ill and had a long spell in hospital. And of course, on a diet like that, who's surprised? You, you can draw, you can kind of imagine all sorts of things of what might have been wrong with her, but probably best not to. This is a professional habit of mine. I get um, I get a, a reference, I go, oh, you've got a patient. And I, I get very little about them. And then you, you look at the history and you put things together and you're 97% of the time you're wrong. So I try and stop myself doing that. She was a very prolific author. She wrote 66 novels, which is a ton, and innumerable short stories, radio plays. Uh, she was the editor of the fifth to the ninth ghost books. The story, Harry, I think there are three stories of Timperley's that I'm quite familiar with. One is The Christmas Meetings, very short. And there's Harry, which has been made into a film a number of times. And there's another one, um, I think it's Her Dark Mistress, and, and it's the ghost of a school teacher. So um, that's a good story. Maybe one day I'll do that. So Harry, what? So I said uh, Steve Cuff suggested, I'd read it before, but Steve Cuff suggested I put this out. What can we say about it? It is, it is a disturbing story. Now, there are many of the stories I read that I enjoy, but don't disturb me. But there's something about this story that kind of gets in my stomach and upsets me. It's a bleak view of life, really, that what we love can be taken from us and inevitably is taken from us. And I suppose as a parent, and particularly a parent of girls, the idea that your daughter would just vanish is like, oh, that really upsets me, you know. I think there's also something about the eeriness of death, where, and in the previous podcast, I've talked about that book by Mark Fisher, the critic, The Weird and the Eerie, and he, he distinguishes between the eerie and the weird and the uncanny. And um, we talk about the uncanny a lot, the uncanny valley, the similarity of something, something that's familiar and unfamiliar. But the eerie is about agency, Fisher says. And he talks about, you know, we talk about the eerie ruins of Stonehenge. So somebody did that, but we don't know why. And so he says the eerie is all about an unknown agency. And that's unsettling because it speaks of hidden powers. Death comes and does things, or Harry the ghost is an agent, and, and we don't understand him, and we don't know exactly what he is. And, and I don't know if I'm right in saying that, but that seems quite eerie to me. I'm not often unnerved by um, madness either, obviously. But I remember a number of years ago, I had a patient who believed she was married to someone who she wasn't. And she conversely believed that the husband she was married to wasn't really her husband. So she, she had a schizophrenia. So schizophrenia to me is, a, is an illness of agency. And um, to me, it's all about having an experience 
which we do not think is ours. So we ascribe it to an agent, an unknown agent, a shadowy power. So people with this kind of delusion will often believe that shadowy figures such as aliens, KGB, the police, are monitoring or interfering in their lives. And that is scary, demonic horses. But this is scary because if these powers, these shadowy powers, these unknown powers um, can interfere, what? how can we ever be safe? And I think that is the definition of eerie, really, uh, unknown agency. So as I was saying, this particular patient, in those days there weren't mobile phones, or there were, but people didn't really have them. And um, I took her to the public phone box and stood a little while away while she went through the, uh, what she believed was real, of ringing up her true husband, who probably didn't never met her. Oh, well, he'd met her, but, you know, he certainly wasn't married to her. And she would ring with her finger on the button so it didn't actually connect. And she would have a conversation, just this, these susurrations, this whispering, it would be like, at a really low undertone, but yet kind of mime the actions. And I don't think she was putting it on to her. She was having some kind of conversation, but who was this? And I think that was the eeriness. So to me, this is an eerie story. Harry is a mysterious agent. What is he doing? You know, I go through these stories and references fire off. So the the pleasant primary teacher in a white dress is my daughter, Catherine. To me, this year she's teaching uh, very small ones when they first come in, basically babies. And she loves her job and she loves taking care of these kids. So that was my daughter there. The image of when she goes and hears the story of um, Harry holding his sister Christine and them falling into the roses where they've played, that idea of something falling past the window is, ugh, that's horrible. Um, I don't like that. And there is a theory that, um, the, the initial theory is that Harry saved his sister from being gassed, which he certainly did. And then that somebody puts in, or oh, was he just trying to take her with him? Which, of course, foreshadows the end and foreshadows what the madwoman says, the madwoman says, who isn't a very convincing madwoman to me, actually. That's probably the weak point in the story. She's not in my experience, does not sound insane. And, um, but, you know, falls into the roses. He won't, he won't stop coming back until he takes Christine. So this is this mysterious agent. And I think it's the inexorable nature of this revenant Harry who appears otherwise. And I think what um, Timperley does, I mean, she's a fantastically good technical writer. I mean, this is, this is a very, very well-constructed story. And, you know, she's written so many, of course, of course, of course she is. It foreshadows the fact that he will take her in the end and that inexorable nature of the taking, there's nothing she can do to, to do it. And, and almost um, the search and how she's consumed by the search conspires to make it possible because she's late for school. And the, the, the bell rings three times, you know, it's three o'clock and she knows she's late and she's in a fluster. And then, of course, the, the, the boy has come and he didn't speak, he just smiled. Of course, these days that wouldn't happen. That would be what we'd call a safeguarding incident. Um, so, yeah, a, a, a kind of an unsettling story for me. And it's funny how different stories unsettle different people. I don't know if you remember recently we did uh, Whatever Happened to Corporal Cuckoo. And there is, at the very beginning, they're talking about the troop ship returning from Europe to America 
absolutely laden, stuffed full. And then we talk about how this officer has rescued a dog. And uh, there's a number of people just said, I can't read any further. I mean, the dog just appears for about two sentences, but it's this, the fear that something will happen to the dog puts them off. So, diff- and, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, okay. But that, that isn't my trigger. And I guess it depends on what, you, what, what particular experiences and things you've had in your life that make you sensitive to certain stories. So if you've got a big fear of earwigs, you're probably not going to like um, Boomerang by uh, Oscar Cook, which we read. You know, that's probably going to get to you. But for me, and I think the other one that really got to me was The Pomegranate Seed by Edith Wharton, which is again, The Dead Wife. I think it's something about the dead having a, a, a plan, having agency in our lives, wanting something from us to take us into death. I think that's what it is. If you imagine, remember in the pomegranate seed, the dead wife wants to bring the husband into the death world with her. And in this one, Harry wants to come from beyond the grave to take his sister into the death world with him. And it is that, that's what gets me. What's your poison, as it were? So anyway, um, I've got a little dog with me today who is my grand dog. She's a little Staffordshire Bull Terrier called Shade, and she's sitting at my feet. Now, she was whimpering before, and I thought, oh, don't be whimpering when I'm recording. Uh, But she's settled down now, and the reason she's whimpering, I've worked this out. So we've got her because she's Sheila's son's dog, my stepson, I suppose, dog. So we have her quite a lot now because we've moved quite close to them. She likes us all to be together. She likes the bed. She doesn't like going out in the cold. She li- she wants to go to bed, but she wants us to go to bed with her. And if we're separate, if the pack is separate, she- she's not happy. And so Sheila's out at yoga this morning and I'm not. I'm doing this. It's a lovely sunny morning. So she hasn't settled all morning. I took her out for a walk and it was, there was a bit of frost on the grass and she doesn't like getting her feet wet either and cold. So she's a, she's a sweet little thing. She's such a good natured dog, but there we are. So I enjoy having it and she's sleeping, I think, which is good. Who said I wasn't a dog lover? I am a dog lover. I used to do a call to action, didn't I? Oh yeah. Okay. Do you see, I've done a giveaway for my books and I've done a little video, which is just about the video, the, the giveaway. So if you could just share that and then if you do share it on any, any social media or any platform at all, then you get a chance to win the two books. The two books are, I should say, Cumbrian Ghost Stories and more Cumbrian Ghost Stories. And as I note in the video, that is a very imaginative title progression. I think the next one will be called Even More Cumbrian Ghost Stories. Although I do have lots of ideas about actually editing an anthology of other people's work. I was going to do some Edinburgh Ghost Stories. You know, I've got connections with Edinburgh as well. And uh, and awesome Welsh ones. But I probably haven't got time to write more. Too busy. Anyway, uh, again, be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?